0: Father Thomas G. Guarino is with us today. He is professor of theology at Seton Hall University. He's known well to First Things Readers as one of the leaders of Evangelicals and Catholics Together. He has a collection of his essays out called The Unchanging Truth of God, Critical Philosophical Issues for Theology. That is our topic today. Welcome, Father Guarino. Pleasure to be with you, Mark. Thank you so much. An opening question. We're going to jump right in. Why does theology need philosophy? Who needs yeah. all that uh, abstract stuff?
1: Yeah, and of course that takes us right to the heart of the book of you know the relationship between philosophy and theology. Right from the beginning. I always like to start with uh, with Saint Paul, of course, in Acts chapter seventeen, where he goes to the Areopagus in Athens, and you know he it says the scripture tells us he. He met with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, and he tells them, "You have a statue to an unknown god, and I'm here to tell you who that god is—the mm. uh, god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." So, right from the beginning, right from uh, the start, uh, Christianity meets up with philosophy and the philosophy which dominates the Hellenic world. And it's interesting—I mean—and this is—I just say this tangentially—but but Pope Benedict interestingly says there's a there's a line in Acts where it says St. Paul, uh, in a dream, recognizes that his path to Asia was blocked. But a Macedonian, a Greek, appeals to him saying, come here, come here, we need your help. And Pope Benedict says, and this was providential, because Christianity had to meet up with Hellenic philosophy, because faith and reason had to be conjoined right from the beginning, because both of them are gifts from God human rationality and Christian faith. Um, so uh, interestingly, you know, when we go through the history, uh, you know, we'll talk more about this over the over the course of our time, Mark, but it, when you go through the history, very rarely do you have Christian theologians saying we don't need philosophy. Probably the most famous is Tertullian. Uh, we're all we're all familiar with his famous what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? What does the academy, he's talking about Plato's academy in Athens, what does the academy have to do with the church? We have the wisdom taught from the the, the portico of Solomon. Why do we need curious disputation? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, But Tertullian is kind of a lone dissenter in this. The greater and broader Christian tradition is that, yes, uh, God has bestowed his wisdom on human beings. Rationality is a gift and even the pagans can can achieve a great deal of wisdom. So uh, Plato, Aristotle, these men who knew not a whit about the God of Israel or about Jesus Christ, obviously, uh, achieved a great deal in terms of their knowledge of virtue, of truth. Uh, and so we, we should appreciate and recognize this and, and utilize it to our advantage. Utilize it wherever it's found. And you know, you may have found um, interesting, at least something I always found interesting, is is Origen. Origen was a Christian thinker in Alexandria in the early 3rd century, about 220 A.D. And Origen it was a great genius and a great master of the Scriptures. But it's interesting yeah. how these questions were alive for the early Christians in, in the way they're not alive for us today. So yeah. the Christians say to Origen, I mean, You can ask a very practical question. Look, I'm a Christian. Should I be a soldier in Caesar's army? Uh, That's one question. But another question would be, should I be reading Plato? Should I be reading Marcus Aurelius as a Christian? And Origen, I think so brilliantly says, you know, look at the Israelites um, in, in captive, in slavery in Egypt. What do they do before the Exodus? It says they took gold and silver from the Egyptians prior to the Exodus and used it for the service of God. That is, they used it to build religious artifacts for their worship. And so Origen says, just as the Israelites fled from Egyptian religion, but used Egyptian gold and silver to uh, to build these artifacts, so in the same way we Christians can take philosophical gold and silver, From Plato and Aristotle, but use it for the glory of God. Hmm. So I think that's, you know, that's, it might say, the trope or the image that has guided Christianity down through the ages that philosophy can be used in the service of God in many different ways. One of the things in the book I talk about is the, uh, you know, Christians make very strong truth claims. We claim that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and that's universally and perpetually true. Uh, it's transculturally true, it's transtemporally true. So uh, a good question is, and you know, with your background in postmodern thought, Mark, is there such a thing as uh, transcultural, transtemporal truth? Is there such thing as meaning invariance? You know, is there is there a meaning in this text, a famous book by Stanley Fish uh, years ago, um, is there, can we speak of mere Christians? We recite the Nicene Creed every Sunday. The Nicene Creed comes to us from the fourth century. Now we say that we make the same confession of faith that these fourth century Christians did. Is there such a thing as meaning invariance that takes place over the course of very different cultures, very different epochs, very different times? So philosophy can help us also elucidate those kinds of questions over the course of time. Now, uh, forgive me if I'm going on talking too much. Mark, no,
0: no. no. But, uh, well, but, but a little, a little gadfly question. Sure. In what ways have you seen philosophy harm theology?
1: Yeah. Well, that's yes, because uh, you know, and if we could, uh, if we can continue the origin point. So he says yes, we can take spoils from Egypt. We can take philosophical gold and silver from the Greeks. But, he, but then he says, rare are those men who have taken only what is useful for the glory of God. Rather, too many take gold and silver and build the golden calf at Bethel. So hmm. he, Origen, already in the third century, is well aware that philosophy can harm if it's uh, inappropriately used, and one of the themes I think that you know is in my book is that uh, philosophy, uh, for example, I think Heidegger. I make the point uh, uh, in several of the essays that Catholic theologians, Protestant theologians as well, uh, but mostly I'm talking about Catholic theologians. Yeah. Uh, they turn to Heidegger and Hans georg Gadamer. Uh, kind of Gadamer, a master of hermeneutical thinking, and Heidegger, in some ways, also connected to this school. Uh, and I think they turned to him, this was it, all after Vatican II, and I think the emphasis was on growth, hmm. sensitivity to history, sensitivity to development over the course of time. And uh, many Catholic theologians turned to these thinkers, thinking that Perhaps they could help us elucidate um, the Christian faith for today to make it more intelligible, more understandable. But I would argue, and I argue in the book, that in fact they're deleterious for Christianity because their emphasis really is on mutability, changeability, reversibility. I do not think either man can sustain the notion of material continuity over the course of time. If there's one thing that's important to Christianity, it's that there's a material continuity of the faith. We believe what the early church believed. We believe the same creed that was fashioned at Nicaea in the 4th century, not to mention the scriptures. So, um, but I think their their entire philosophies so emphasize the historical soup yeah. as I like to say the provisionality the contingency, the historicity of life, that you can't have material continuity over time.
0: Um, I I, I would say that, I mean, you touch uh, upon this, and and I think it goes to show where philosophy can help and the way you described where Heidegger can hurt, uh, but where Heidegger can help, and you tell me if you agree with this, when Heidegger lays out just right at the beginning of being in time, uh The forgetting of being, mm-hmm. which is really the forgetting of the different the ontological difference between being and b be, mm-hmm. capital B and right. beings. I think that this actually is a nice warning for us in our attempt to understand god. Mm-hmm. do not do not try to turn God into a being small b. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard. It it is very hard not not to do that. Not 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 to, to see being just as a kind of substance. Mm-hmm. Uh rather. Uh you, you you agree. I do agree,
1: but I don't think we needed Heidegger to teach us that. <laughs> I, think, I think that was already uh well yeah. planted in the tradition of the church. So Saint Thomas uh you know goes on about this that let you can't regard God as simply one being among beings. God is essay, being itself. God is the creator of being. So Aquinas already is very, very careful about this, which which Heidegger doesn't see and Heidegger overlooks. And even today, some Catholic uh, thinkers overlook that. I mean, you're you're 100% right. I mean, Heidegger is right on that point. Uh, but you even have, I don't know if you ever had a chance to do much work on Jean-Luc Marion, but, but he he wrote a famous book called God Without Being, and he's he's an important Catholic uh, philosopher, but Marion also misunderstood that because his point was it, just one you're making, you know. And he says, "I want to out Heidegger Heidegger uh, because I want to make clear we can't objectify God, we can't reify God. God is not just like us. God is different. So, uh, you know, uh, you know, Marion is right on all about that. But but you know, as has been pointed out to him. The tradition strongly affirms this. So Aquinas says, you know, we're united to God in Prima Pars, uh, question 12. He says we're united to God almost as to an unknown, almost as to an unknown, because he wants to make clear the qualitative difference between us and between God. So, yes. So, I mean, in a sense, Mark, I fully agree that we could say not only Heidegger, but what is postmodernity in general? It tries to teach us about otherness. It tries to teach us about difference. So in that sense, it can serve as a kind of negative propodutic for theology, yeah. that, we, that we can't simply regard God as a being among beings, certainly.
0: Just as another side note, Heidegger went through a, a strong Catholic education, right? mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: He did and was very, very briefly in a Catholic seminary, uh, yeah. maybe, maybe for a month or two. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, you know, Gadamer says at one point in his reflections that, you know, he tried to, cha- he tried to shake off the religion he was raised in so he could really be a Christian. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I think, unfortunately, I think, for and this is a theme in the book as well, but I think Heidegger got caught up. And, you know, this is, this is something that's still with us today. Heidegger got caught up in that um, opposition of Hellenic and Hebraic thought, uh, and it's you know I think a great book would be written on where did this come from first and how has it played out. Now, hmm. in the book, I trace it back to Wilhelm Dilthey, was a uh, an early nineteenth century thinker. Uh, you know, and a, a good philosopher. But Tiltai is, is the first that I've been able to see to really emphasize that, you know, Jesus of Nazareth and the Bible represents Hebraic thought, and Hellenic thought, Greek philosophy, starts to obfuscate and even deform uh, Christian thought. and And Heidegger picks this up because prior to writing being in Time, he wrote a book about, uh, I think it's entitled The Phenomenology of Religious Experience. That's what's entitled in English. And this was about 1923, mm. so four years before being in time. And be, and there, being in time, he doesn't talk much about religion. But in 1923, he does. And he says, you know, if you look at the New Testament, Paul's letters, there's an air of anxiety, an air of expectation an air of, you know, eschatology, Christ coming again. But by the time we get to the Nicene Creed, uh, Christianity has been infected with uh, Hellenism. So we're talking about homoousios, the same substance. We've adopted a Greek uh, philosophical terminology, which drains the New Testament of Kind of these other dimensions of anxiety and expectation. So Heidegger really presses hard on this hellenic Hebraic, and that you know works its way out throughout the entire tradition. So I think you know Heidegger, uh, you know, he brings something important. Heidegger has something to say to us, but I do think this. You know, it's interesting that Benedict, and this is a you know in in, in the Regensburg lecture, which is a which is a, an essay I, I have yeah. in this book. Yeah. he 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 by name he attacks uh, Harnack, who who Harnack is the early 20th century his, Lutheran Church historian who presses this, and Harnack says Jesus of Nazareth had a simple message: uh, God is our Father, and all men are brothers. And Greek metaphysics got us into the Holy Trinity and the eternal Son of God. And so Harnack says again, you know, this is Hellenism deforming and debasing the Christian faith. And Pope Benedict attacks him. And as I say to my students, you know, you've had influence when a pope attacks your book 100 (laughs) years after it's been published. Uh, But he attacks him by name because he sees this as such a deleterious approach that philosophy ruined Christianity instead of philosophy teaching us something about Christianity.
0: Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Your first essay has the title Philosophia Obscurans. Right. Explain that term for us.
1: Yeah, so, you know, so, and really, I think there's a question mark over it because it says, you know, is philosophy obscuring? So it really it really presses this point. Does philosophy obscure the Christian faith? And, you know, I'm obviously arguing that that's not the case. It can, you know, as you were pointing out, it can obscure the Christian faith, but not necessarily. And it could help the Christian faith. Uh, you know, we'll talk about that in a little bit Um you know the, the encyclical of John Paul II, et Ratio*. But one of the things I try to point out in that essay is that you know, even today, there's a you know famous Reformed thinker, Karl Barth, who has had tremendous influence not only in Protestant thought but in Catholic thought. And he was another one who picks up this idea that philosophy is uh obscurantist. Philosophy harms the essence of Christianity. And why? because Barth's point and and I can agree with his point you can't have an as he says uh, a context superior to the context of the church hmm. that is you can't establish a basis for belief outside of the Christian faith or outside of the church but philosophy doesn't you know I argue philosophy doesn't establish the Christian faith but it helps to Uh, make the faith more intelligible, it often gives us a vocabulary. As John Paul II says, it confirms the Christian faith. He's getting back to this idea of the universality and perpetuity of the Christian faith. So so when I say, you know, obscuring philosophy, question mark, does philosophy obscure? Uh, My argument is that yes, some people from Tertullian and of course Luther, picks this up very strongly. We don't even have to go to Luther. Let's go to the University of Paris in the 13th century. And the the Bishop of Paris, Etienne Tempier, says to the theology faculty of Paris, look, a little less time on Aristotle's metaphysics and a little more time on the Bible. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, and he writes a letter to the theology faculty and basically says, "You know with that, and he, and you and you understand his point. His point is, you know Aristotle's metaphysics teaches us a lot of truth, but we're Christians, and that has to take precedence. And then Luther picks this up in the sixteenth century, and so and then Luther says, uh, you know the church needs to be reformed on the basis of the Bible." Scholastic philosophy obscures the Christian faith. And then, you know, it's picked up in various ways since the 16th century. Um, So, you know, I like to trace line Tertullian, Etienne Tempier, Luther, and down to today. But my argument is while it's true that philosophy can obscure the Christian faith, it can also help the Christian faith.
0: Well, you you put it in, in thesis three in that essay. You say theology must, quote, discipline philosophy. Yes. Uh, And that's, I guess, the Barthian frame, right? Exactly. So,
1: you know, to to use the the traditional terminology, there's always the epistemic primacy of theology. So it's the epistemic primacy of the Christian faith, which ultimately disciplines uh, every philosophical thought. And, and, you know, Aquinas said this back in the 13th century, citing uh, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, every thought must ultimately come to the obedience of Christ. So every thought must ultimately be under Jesus' Christ's dominion. He said, and St. Thomas says it's not enough to say you believe something by philosophical re- reason. How is it related to Jesus Christ? So this is is deeply rooted in the tradition, but I but I think it has to be said again and again we don't simply adopt philosophy. We use philosophy uh, to the extent that we can. You know, one of the essays, for example, on on Johnny uh, Vattimo, I don't know if you ever had a chance to, to look at uh, Vattimo, you know, Signor Vattimo, I wrote a book on him uh, a few years back, and he's someone who is, you know, an interesting philosopher. He's really a Nietzschean, uh, and he brings up many interesting points, but his philosophy would certainly need to be completely disciplined by the Christian faith. Otherwise, yeah. it becomes the other way around. He yeah. wants the Christian faith to be disciplined by Nietzsche.
0: One, one, one qualification that you make at the end of that first essay is you say metaphysics must be preserved. It is, quote, the essential theoretical spine. Yes. Of theology's claims.
1: Yes. Yes. And I think that for many reasons. And of course, that's probably, uh, you know, a controversial aspect of this book. Um But I think that metaphysics now, you know, and I mean, and I I explained there that I mean metaphysics in a commodious sense. Uh, I'm not just saying we have to go back and adopt the conceptual arsenal of the 13th century. But I do think that there is, you know, as John Paul II says in Fides et Ratio, um, we need philosophies with a metaphysical range. And what he means by that, what I mean by that is... um, we need philosophies that are able to establish the universality and perpetuity, the possibility of universal and perpetual truth. As I was saying before, meaning invariance. Metaphysics helps to do that. This goes so, you know, one of the things John Paul says in et Ratio*: we need philosophies that are congruent with the word of God. So uh, a philosophy that's congruent with the word of God is one that's able to say, yes, there is universal truth. There is uh, transcultural truth. There is meaning invariance. Metaphysics is able to do that. Metaphysics is also able to teach us, you know, the question which, which always exists. How is it possible? You were referring to this before when you talked about the difference of God from us. So a traditional theological question is, how do we take limited, finite concepts and apply them to God? So when we say God is good, wise, just, holy, omniscient, omnipotent, uh, we're taking human concepts and applying them to the divine. What type of truth is mediated by those concepts? Metaphysics helps us to do that by talking about the analogy of being, that there is some analogical relationship between ourselves and God. Uh, and it's interesting uh, it's interesting how Pope Benedict also goes after this because in his Regensburg address, because uh, if you remember, he talks about Ibn Hasim, an eleventh century Islamic philosopher who said that even if God wanted us to worship idols. If God willed us to worship idols, we would have to do it. And Benedict says, uh, "No, no." He says, "You know, this is to make God irrational." But as we know, there's an analogical relationship with us, and even though God hmm. far exceeds us, hmm. nonetheless, God, we share in some way in rationality, which God is completely in fullness. So, uh, and by the way, you know, just just for the sake of fairness. Uh, Benedict said that that irrationality also entered the church in the 12th 11th century uh under the guise of the idea that God's God could in his absolute power condemn even a just man to hell and and Benedict said you know that that too shows irrationality God does not act irrationally
0: hmm Jump jump to the essay, uh, which touches upon this, which takes off from the modern conviction of the unavoidable situatedness and embeddedness and historicity of human beings and all that they come up with, and you turn to Saint Anselm Mm -hmm. with a detailed commentary on his answer to the what do what do do we call it the historical relativist. Condition, uh, what does he offer in answer to this?
1: Yeah, and and Anselm. Well, let me talk a little bit, if you don't mind, Mark. Let me talk before I mention Anselm. Let me talk a little bit about, you know, what I think is, you know, in all, in some ways, all of these essays respond to hermeneutical and postmodern thought. Yeah, uh, and they're all dealing with that context. But you know, I think always I find illustrative, happily illustrative, is Nietzsche. Uh, in some of these points, because I think Nietzsche, of course, pulled no punches. And Nietzsche always spoke with, um, uh, you know, in in very uh, vivid, in very vivid tones. So, you know, I always, I always like the point of Nietzsche, how the world became a fable, which he talks about in The Twilight of the Idols. And Nietzsche says, you know, uh, with Plato, we knew that the wise man the wise man would be the one who knew what the true world really is. And he says, you know, with Jesus, the virtuous disciple is the one who would know what the true world really is. But then he says we get to Immanuel Kant, and Kant basically says the noumenon is not really available to our cognitive grasp. We don't really know. The true world exists, but we don't really know it. And at the end, Nietzsche says, "Who needs the true world? Hmm. Uh, we We don't need any foundation. Just live. There is no foundation in the world whatsoever. So
0: be strong.
1: Yeah, exactly. Be the ubermensch and and take control of your life. Um, and, and I think and if I and if I may just make the second that from thus spoke uh, Zarathustra, Uh, Nietzsche has a great little parable, which, again, I think illustrates this idea of postmodernism. Nietzsche Nietzsche sees some priests walking on the street. And these priests are really a a, a placeholder for traditional morality. And and Nietzsche says, I feel sorry for these priests. He says, the Redeemer has put them in chains. They thought they were building their house on, on bedrock but they were building it on a monster and the monster will wake up and devour them. Hmm. And I think very, very interesting there is who is the monster? The monster is history. The monster is contingency. So in other words, there is no bedrock. There is no antos on really real foundation. So, so Nietzsche trying to say, as you say, be strong. Nietzsche says, say, grasp your life. There is no foundation. There is no final truth. There is no ultimate. There is no absolute. There is no uh, finality. So I think in all of that, we see the postmodern context displayed to us. Now, one of the ways that essay on Anselm was an attempt to say, you know, here this medieval thinker, this great medieval thinker is trying to show us how there is universal rationality. So Anselm In the monologian, uh, you know, his two great works, the monologian, the prosologian, Anselm says, you know, even if men, uh, and obviously women, even if they never heard the word God, they can still form some idea of God. And he tries to give an of course, we all know his ontological argument, and whether or not you accept his argument is, 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 is by the wayside. The point is what he's trying to do which is trying to appeal to rationality in all human beings. So, you know, and I think that's a you know an important point because one of the, the themes of the essay, and this goes back to your question about metaphysics, Mark, is, you know, we have to defend the idea that there's such a thing as a human nature because this is, is human nature simply historical? And if human nature is simply historical, what kind of grasp of truth do we have? Are there any structures of humanity, which are universal, always and everywhere the same. And this is what Anselm is trying to argue. And so when I deal with it, there are a lot of people who try to say Anselm is just giving an argument to other believers, to his, yeah. other, his monks. And I'm trying to say, no, 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 no. He's not just giving an intrasystemic argument. He's saying all people This argument is accessible to all rational human beings, uh, precisely on the fact that all of us share in in rationality. So, um, you know, I'm trying to overcome here a certain uh, view of Anselm, which I think is deeply mistaken.
0: The book is The Unchanging Truth of God, Critical Philosophical Issues for Theology. Father Guarino, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you, Mark. I really enjoyed it. Great to be with you.